Uh, for those of you who missed last week, we went through the Beatitudes, and uh, this morning we are going to be talking about salt and light. Uh, for, for those of you who, who don't know me, I know, I know that they introduced me a little bit, but my name is Jose. Um, I am a, a missionary to the Central Asia, Middle East region of the world. Uh, and I want to in, introduce my family real quick. Uh, there should be a picture on the screen. There's uh, my wife, Natasha. There is, we, we have a six-year-old son, Judah, a four-year-old daughter, Eleanor, and an 11-month-old son, Samuel. And uh, we get the great honor to call ourselves uh, missionaries. And so when I say the word missionary, I don't, I don't know what image has come to your mind. Uh, for some of you, you might imagine someone standing on a box and shouting out the gospel message for anyone who would listen or... Uh, for some of you, maybe you picture someone uh, boiling water on a dirt floor so that they'll have clean water to drink, or maybe you picture an imperialistic type soldier who is wanting the country that they're in to look and feel and act like America. And if you're picturing these things, uh, you can rest assured that I'm none of these things. Uh, we uh, are going to an area of the world uh, that actually doesn't need us to build wells for them. They don't need us to... Uh, to, to provide clean water or food. And so we are forced to preach the gospel in brokenness, uh, to pre- preach the gospel in just the integrity of his word. And these verses in 13 through 16 have a lot to say about being attractive to the world. And uh, simply put, as a missionary, I just get the distinct privilege of being able to share the gospel with people who have never heard of Jesus before. Or specifically where we're going, uh, they see Jesus as nothing more than a prophet uh, who foretold the way of Muhammad. For security reasons, we can't share on stage exactly where that is, but we'll talk your ears off uh, over coffee or lunch or uh, come and see us at the Next Steps table, and we will share and answer any question that you can possibly have. Uh, so if you have your Bibles and you want to follow along, uh, go with me to Matthew chapter 5. And so this morning, our main text is going to come out of 13 through 16. But in order to understand these verses, I think it's vitally important that we remind ourselves what Jesus was telling the disciples before this. And so when you are looking in your Bible, you probably see three headings. You, at the very top, you probably see Sermon on the Mount. Uh, and, then, and then you probably see the Beatitudes, and then you'll see Salt and Light. And I think what this does is it makes us separate the logic. There, there are the Beatitudes, and then there's the Salt and Light section. And when we do that, I think, I think we miss this beautiful connection that Jesus makes between the passive traits of the Beatitudes and the result of those traits that we see in the salt and light. So I'm going to start with verse 2, and I'm going to read through verse 16. And he, Jesus, opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Let's pray. Jesus, I pray that as we come and approach your word this morning, 
with, with all of its truth, with all of its splendor. I pray that you would open up the ears of the listeners and the hearts of the listeners, Lord, that you would uh, fill my heart and fill my words with nothing but that would come from you. Pray that you would speak to us and, and allow our hearts to be changed and transformed as we learn what it is to be salt and light in your kingdom. In the name of Jesus, amen. And so I mentioned uh, Matthew 5, 13 through 16, flowing naturally out of the Beatitudes. And uh, it seemingly stands in stark contrast with verses 11 through 12, where we see Jesus telling his disciples that you will be persecuted. And if we hadn't read verses 13 through 16, I think our natural tendency as humans would be, well, if I'm going to be persecuted for my faith, why would I go public with it? Why would I be salt? Why would I be light? Shouldn't we hide instead? And indeed, I think the church has thought this for centuries, um, and if not thought it, certainly we've acted like it. And you need only to look at the existence of unreached people groups, uh, people who have little to no access to the gospel because there is no one in their presence who know the name of Jesus and is sharing the gospel with them, to know how the church has failed in its mission to evangelize these people. More so, you, you only need to listen to the discourse that we see all over, even, even here in America, about how non-Christians talk about Christians. It's no surprise to think that we haven't exactly made the world thirst for our God. And I don't say this to browbeat the church. Despite our shortcomings, the church still has a rich history of taking the gospel to the ends of the earth. And there's still a rich history of the church acting in compassion and love and people coming to a saving, saving knowledge of God because of it. But, but as I've asked before, and if, and if you heard me preach at the East Memphis campus a few weeks ago, I asked the same question. Are we doing enough to take the gospel and prioritize the gospel uh, to the uttermost ends of the earth? John Stott says, the greatest hindrance to the advancement of the gospel worldwide is the failure of the lives of God's people an anonymous author added to that, for uh, the reason some folks don't believe in missions, and I would add evangelism here, is that the brand of religion that they have isn't worth propagating. We see here in this text, though, that Jesus is telling the church that we, the church, are the salt of the earth. We are the light of the world. And exhibiting the characteristics of the Beatitudes is what makes it possible for us to be salt and light on the earth, in the world, among the nations. Robert Mounts put, puts it this way, if the Beatitudes leave the impression that life in the kingdom is somewhat passive, the metaphors of salt and light correct such a misunderstanding. Salt permeates and performs its vital function in society. Light illumines the darkness and points people to the one who is the source of all light and life. See, our brand of religion is worth propagating to the neighbor across the street and to the stranger in a dirt hut because those who love and follow Jesus are, are the only real salt that this world will ever taste and the only authentic light that this world will ever see. And so then, if Jesus in this passage is telling us that we are salt and light, I think the natural question we should ask is, well, what is salt and light used for? And what does this mean for my life? And salt is used for purifying and preserving, among other things. And light is used, it's, it, it illuminates the darkness. In fact, the definition of darkness is actually the absence of light. And I'll, I'll dig into these more in depth later, but knowing this, if Jesus says that we are the salt, the preservation, and we are the light, the illumination, what does this mean and how can we apply this to our life? And this morning as I walk through this text, I hope to leave you with that answer because uh, as citizens of the kingdom of heaven, we are God's plan to stamp out death and to stamp out darkness. 
And this identity that we see Jesus giving his disciples, it finds its crescendo in the last chapter, in the last verses of this very gospel and what we call the Great Commission. And so to the nations we go as salt and light. And I want to take it even one step further. In Jesus' last words on earth in Acts 1.8, he tells his disciples where they are to be salt and light and, and to make sure there is no confusion. He says in 1.8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And so Jesus' intention here, intention here is obvious. We, we are to be witnesses. We are to be salt and light in Jerusalem, the city that we live in, Judea, our immediate context, Samaria, a deferring culture than our own, and to the ends of the earth, those with little to no access to the gospel. And so I just want to preface everything I say this morning with this. It would be impossible for me to stand up here and not approach this text from a missional viewpoint. As a missionary, as someone who is steeped in missiology, it, it, it would be impossible and disingenuous for me to try so. But at the same time, I want to be careful to not overemphasize the missional themes in, in, in these verses because this passage is for me and my wife as missionaries as much as it is for you as a friend, as a neighbor, as a coworker. See, there is room for both a global view of this message and also a local view. See, Jesus is equally concerned with your neighbor across the street as he is with the people in the country that we're going to. And I hope you'll see that here as I try to keep the integrity of the text, but I'm gonna bring into context many verses in scripture that's gonna show where that fits in with global missions. And, and so this morning, I've got uh, two points that I'm gonna kind of guide us by. Uh, the first one, I'm gonna talk about the revelation of our identity, and then I'm gonna conclude with the result of our identity. And so the first one, we're gonna jump into the Bible. Uh, and I, I alluded to this before, but I wanna start at the end of the chapter here, or the, the end of the gospel here. And so I'm gonna read Matthew 28, 18 through 20. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. And so looking forward to the conclusion, I believe, gives us a better vantage of what Jesus is telling his disciples here in chapter 5. And so in context, uh, when Jesus is given his great commission, he is saying you are to make disciples while going. Uh, the Greek word there is while going, not just go. And so Jesus didn't say where, where we were going, so we can infer that the going is passive. And so we can say that we're not, although we're not all called to go to the nations, uh, where we are as we go about our day, we are to make disciples as Christians. We are to reach our neighbors where we are while helping those who reach the ends of the earth where they are. And Jesus' words in Matthew 5 here make it an undeniable truth that we live in this dark, decadent, decaying world. And where there is decay, we need salt. And where there is darkness, we need light. And, and, and so Jesus gives us salt and light, and I'm going to start with salt this morning. Uh, Jesus declares of his disciples, you are the salt of the earth. And the you is emphatic in this original Hebrew. The you essentially means you and no one else are the salt of the earth. Not you will be, not you can be, not you must strive to be, but you are the salt. Right now, today, church, you are the salt. And so as salt, Jesus is telling us essentially don't lose your purity and don't lose your usefulness. And so one of the primary functions in the ancient world for salt was purification. And this often gets a little bit mixed up in preservation because salt purifies before it can preserve. And again, I want to link the Beatitudes to this, uh, to this salt and light passage and say that there, it's, it's not a coincidence that one of the Beatitudes is blessed are the pure in 
heart. Scattered out among the nations of the earth, Christians are to bear faithful witness to the transforming power of the gospel of Jesus Christ by the lives that we live. In other words, our talk and our walk as Christians, they match up. And by doing so, we bring power to the proclamation of the gospel. Because we are pure in heart, God makes us therefore pure in life. And the proclamation of the gospel requires words. Like, make no doubt about that. But we must live our lives, and the way that we live our lives must match up to the message that we preach. We can't proclaim a message of hope, of reconciliation and joy, but live in despair and discord and anger. And the lost, they'll listen to us because the way that we live our lives cleanses the impurities of the culture and they see something different through the gospel in us. They taste and see that the Lord is good, as David says in Psalm 34. Once you lose your purity, you lose your witness. And once you lose your witness, you lose your usefulness to the kingdom. Now, how do you lose your usefulness? Jesus says in Luke 14, 34 through 35, salt is good. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. The compromise is a deadly cancer to, the, to, our, to our usefulness to God and the kingdom. When we are seduced by the lyrics of materialism, of political power, of uh, irresponsible rhetoric, lax morality, foolish actions, the attractiveness and the beauty of the Christian life is lost. And I like the way the message paraphrases this verse. It says, if you lose your saltiness, how will people taste godliness? If we maintain our commitment and our convictions to Christ, though, with grace and humility, people in your circles will, will inevitably take notice. They will be drawn to us. And I have seen this repeatedly on the mission field and here in America by the way that a husband, as a follower of Christ, loves his wife. His love and his service for her stands out because it is so different from the norm. It, it adds a wonderful flavor and it makes them thirst for something more. There is a unique quality to the love and, and service. It is useful to the kingdom as it draws people to Christ. And as to salt, we are to infiltrate the earth with seasonings of godliness, of fairness, of holiness, of justice and righteousness. God's people should be known for their courage and convictions, but as children of God, we should also be known for our compassion, for our grace, for our humility, and our love toward others. And I want to I ask you this morning, as you examine your life and as you think that the people in my life who are not Christians, if they were to describe my life, would they describe my life as full of compassion, of grace, and humility, and love toward others? This is what it means to be salt of the earth. David Docker is right when he said, salt is only useful when it gives of itself. See, we are to give of ourselves for the kingdom. So let us be salt on this earth and purify the contamination of sin and preserve the good and the lovely that Jesus has to offer. The second metaphor that we see Jesus using to describe his, his disciples as light. So he's a salt and you are the light of the earth. And I'm gonna spend uh, more time here uh, on, on, on light because there's so much to unpack. In fact, there's been... Uh, books written of the theology of light in Scripture. Uh, it's it's a, an entirely deep study that if you wanted to go into, you're more than welcome to. Um, but I'm going to try to hit, hit the highlights for you because I think it's really important that we understand what it means when Jesus is telling us that we are the light of the world. 
And so there's this uh, rich background to this idea of light in the, in the uh, ancient Near East, which is when this was written. And uh, light stood for revelation, it stood for hope, it stood for uh, joy, for righteousness, for salvation. Uh, and as one preacher put it, it stands for the radiance of God's presence. And so I'm just going to cover a few examples from Scripture here, and I've got to warn you, there is a lot of Scripture coming up. Um, and so I'm just going to kind of blow, blow through a lot of it, uh, but it's, it's on the screen here. And so if you're trying to follow along with your Bible, you'll probably get lost. But uh, let's just cover a few examples. Uh, Isaiah 49.6 describes the Messiah, the servant of the Lord, as a light for the nations. And so let's read. It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. Isaiah 42.6 says, I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations. Later in Isaiah 60, 1 through 3, Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness to peoples. But the Lord will arise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you. And nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. And these three examples are just in one book. This is, this is to say nothing of uh, Ezekiel or Daniel or, or even the Psalms. And, and now I'm going to flip to the New Testament. Paul says in Ephesians 5, 8 through 13, For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the, in the Lord. Walk as children of light, and Paul here tells you what, 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 what that means. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things they do in secret. But, but when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. John 1, 45 says of Jesus, in him, Jesus was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. A few verses later in verse 9, the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. You see, you see church, Jesus brings all of this together in John eight twelve when he declares of himself, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And so we see in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus telling his disciples, you are the light of the world. And then in John 8, 12, he says, I am the light of the world. And so if, if you were to ask Jesus, who is the light of the world? Are, are you the light of the world? Am I the light of the world? His answer would be yes, because we as disciples of Jesus are grafted into the sonship of God and we, and we, and we reflect the greater light, which is Christ. And I really want you to think about this. In, the, in this remarkable and then this stunning declaration in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus looked at his disciples and he applied that same image that he applied to, him, to himself to us. Isaiah 49, 6. Again, I'm just going to quickly go through these. We are a light for the Gentiles. His salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. Isaiah 42, 6. We are a covenant for the people and a light for the Gentiles. Isaiah 63. Nations will come to our light and kings to the brightness of our dawn. Ephesians 5. We are to live as children of light for the fruit of light consists in goodness, righteousness, and truth. John 1. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness is not overcome it. See, Jesus is proclaiming that you are the light. And I just want to spell it out for you. If I'm not being clear enough, that's on me. I promise you it's not on you. I want you to understand, and I want to make sure that I emphasize the gospel here, that the light, which is Jesus, has come into the world. He shined in the darkness, and the darkness did not overcome it. You could be the worst light reflector in the history of Christianity. Your light could be hidden under a plethora of baskets and blankets and bushels, 
But the ultimate light that we reflect did not fail and cannot fail. The darkness did not overcome Jesus. And so this identity that Jesus gives us is not something that he gives us so that we have something to do. Oh, now I have to go be light in the world. You don't have to go be the light. See, we are already the light. Charles Spurgeon says, this title of the light had been given by the Jews to certain of their eminent rabbis. With great pomposity, they spoke of Rabbi Judah or Rabbi Jochanan as the lamps of the universe. They called them the lights of the world. And it must have sounded strange in the ears of the scribes and the Pharisees to hear that same title and all soberness applied to a few bronze-faced and callous peasants and fishermen who had become disciples of Jesus. See, we who follow Jesus reflect the greater light who is Christ, and in doing so, we point others to Jesus. And that is a great privilege. Right? We are his light. And that's a great responsibility. I love how Chuck Quarles puts it so clearly. The shining light is a metaphor of the Messiah and his people fulfilling the missionary purpose of manifesting the glory of God among the nations. The shining light, we are the shining light, and that is our metaphor of us fulfilling the missionary purpose that God has for here and around the world. And make no mistake about it, this is the reason for our light. And that's the, that's the reason why I use the word revelation here. When I say the revelation of our identity, I'm not just trying to alliterate to help drive home the point that this was, that this was a revelation to the disciples that we are the salt and light. Jesus was, Jesus was telling his disciples, it is not the pious religious leaders, it is not the strong, the wealthy, the powerful who he would choose to be the light in the world. But instead, he's choosing a bunch of fishermen, tax collectors, and former prostitutes to be his light in the world. See, the kingdom of God is upside down. And this was a true revelation, as it still should be, of our identity as children of God. Believers are called to put aside the deeds of darkness and to clothe ourselves with Christ. And essentially, to be in darkness is to be ignorant of God and his word and to rebel against both. The world is darkness, but believers are light. We know the truth about creation. We, we know the truth about God. We know the truth about the gospel. And we live in view of those realities. The world rejects those things. And we used to be darkness. But now, living in that reality, we are light. Unless we be unsure of what this means for us, Jesus, in the text, provides us with two examples of what it looks like for us to be light. We are to be light as a city on a hill and a lampstand in a house. And so I'm going to start with light on a hill. Charles Spurgeon said, Christ has lighted us that we may enlighten the world. God intends his grace to be as conspicuous as a city built on the mountain's brow. See, church, God did not redeem us and call us into his kingdom in order to hide us. He did not save us to be silent saints. The pronoun of 514 is emphatic. We, and no one else is, the light of the world. See, we, we, we are to be the bright light for all to see, and that light is to have a global impact among the nations. We manifest and put on display the, the goodness, the greatness, the glory of God. Such a brilliant light against the backdrop of darkness. It cannot be hidden. And again, I want to emphasize the gospel here. I'm not talking about legalism, but we must watch our actions. How, how, we, how we act in the world matters. Like We are not to be hidden. This light is not for a few. It is for the world. So we must give attention to our actions. So we must guard our tongues. We are to influence the world as salt and light. And we are not to influence the world by our rules or our lawmaking, but we are to influence the world by guiding them to Jesus. And our influence doesn't come in the form of political powers or Supreme Court justices or presidential candidates. The purpose of putting a city on a hill so that when someone is lost and they're wondering, they can find their way home. 
Jesus is telling us that we are the light of the world as a city on a hill. Is him telling us that we are to shine so that others can find him. The word light occurs four times in verses 14 through 16. In verse 14, it's, it's, it's put on a hill for the whole world to see. Verses 15 through 16 is the light in a house. It is put on a stand in a house to eliminate the entire home. See, no one would ever think to light an oil lamp and hide it un, un, under a bowl. It's nonsense, comical, and I can imagine the disciples kind of chuckling at that idea. No, the purpose of a lamp is to give light. The purpose of a disciple of Jesus is to provide light. By a holy life and a bold witness, you as a Christian will shine bright and far, impacting more people than you might imagine. And a little light makes a big impact in a dark place. In fact, I just bought, we, we, we just bought our kids a little uh, diffuser for, for, for their room. It's got a tiny little LED light, and it bothered my son so much that we had to take it out. Because in the darkness of his room, that little bitty light bothered him. And, that, and that's what Jesus is telling us. A little bit of light can make a huge difference. Jesus is saying that when your light shines before others, they will see your good works. And again, think back to, to, to the Beatitudes. When they see you exhibit the characteristics of the Beatitude, that is what empowers you to become salt and light on the earth. A righteous life and a bold witness is a powerful combination. You can't ignore it. And again, some will revile you and persecute you just as they did the prophets. Others, however, will be mesmerized by your witness and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Significantly, also, they glorify the Father and not us. They attribute, they, uh, attribute to God what, what they see in us as a faithful Christian. See, followers of Jesus are not the source or the origin of our good works, but only the conduit, the channel in which God uses to bring glory to himself. See, God gets glory through my transformed life. And when I'm, over, when I'm overseas as a missionary and they see something different, they don't attribute that different to me. They attribute it to Christ. The spotlight remains on him. And so now I'm going to talk about the result of our identity. We are the salt and light, not by what we do, but by whose we are. And so therefore, we should be prioritizing taking the gospel to the, to the most decayed and the darkest places here and here and overseas. And so I have a few areas of practical application for you. Uh, the, the first one, I'm going to talk about taking your light to your neighbor. Uh, so the first area of practical ap application is to be salt and light where you are right now. Uh, where do you see decay around you? Where is there darkness? How can you be salt and light in those places? See, this is, this is being a light on a lampstand. Uh, having light on a lampstand in a house uh, infers proximity. It infers intimacy. It infers closeness. And, and it isn't a stretch of the imagination to say that this country is slipping into a uh, post-Christian existence and we can debate for hours and years and whether or not that's good. And I'm, gonna, I'm not going to try to convince you one way or another, uh, but I, I recently read a story or a study recently that said 80% um, of adults in America who come to Christ do so because they knew a Christian and that Christian's life positively impacted the way that they view Christianity. So even though you may not realize it, you are an ambassador and witness to the gospel in your everyday life. Like, fair or not, the people around you who don't profess Christianity are judging the merits of what you say and believe based off of how you act, and they'll judge you while they're persecuting you. And the church grows when you are willing to step out and share the faith that God has saved for you. 
So living a life that reflected beatitude and the righteousness of God is an invitation for persecution. And you would think that the world would cherish such a person who exhibits the characteristics of the beatitude, but they actually crucified the perfect example. Jesus told us in John 16, 33, in the world you will have tribulation. He told us again in John 15, 18, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. Paul adds in 2 Timothy 3.12, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. See, Scripture is very clear that people will act and they will speak evilly against you. We should not be surprised or angry when persecution comes our way. We should expect it. And when persecution beyond, goes beyond just words, which words can certainly hurt and wound, you may experience rejection, you may experience loss of friends, family, and jobs, and, and a lot of the places that my, my wife and I are going into could even lead to imprisonment and torture and even martyrdom. When that happens, know that you are blessed. When that happens, rejoice. When that happens, be glad. Like the apostles, you were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for his name. First, it is evidence that you are a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. Rejection will come. Persecution will come. Second, a great reward awaits you in heaven. Third, you will find yourself in excellent company, as Jesus says at the end of the Beatitudes, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Take joy in your suffering, in your persecution, because being a light on the city of the hill that can't be hidden, you are the salt of the earth that brings about purification and preservation. You are God's chosen people. And I want to make sure that I don't, I, I don't leave you with just a, a theoretical view of what this means. And so I was, I was talking to a pastor about this, and, and I was like, hey, I've got a lot of missional stuff, but, you know, I'm kind of struggling with the local stuff. And uh, he said what he was going to uh, preach on at the East Memphis campus was the blessed method. And um, I mean, so I'm going to share that with, with you this morning. And, um, and so BLESS is, is an acronym. The B stands for begin with prayer. Uh, essentially, you're praying for people in your life who are far from God. Like, how do you want me, you ask God, how do you want me to bless the people in my life? The L stands for listen with care. Uh, pay attention to people's dreams and pain. You listen for evidence of God's work in their lives. The E stands for eat together. Uh, share meals with people in your life. Uh, again, you want to make sure that you're sharing meals with people who don't know God. And, and you, you want to listen for evidence of God's work in their lives. I can promise you God is working in their life. Uh, listen for that evidence. Uh, the first S is serve and love. Be attentive to opportunities that God provides you to care for people and attend to their needs. And the last S is share your story. Once you build relationships and once you earn trust, look for ways that you can share your story of how Jesus is transforming your life and the world. And so you don't, need, you, don't, you don't need to be a Bible scholar to share with people what God is doing in your life. And so... And so use, use this as a framework for evangelism. For those of you who say, well, I don't really feel comfortable going to my neighbor and being like, hey, Jesus loves you. Why don't, why don't you come to church with me? Um, maybe, maybe this method. First, you start with prayer. You always start with prayer. Begin with prayer. Uh, listen, listen to their needs. Uh, inv invite them over. Sh share with them. Serve them in love. And then eventually share your story. And that's, and that's what it means really to take this identity that Jesus gives us as salt and light and put it from our head to our heart and finally to our hands. And so the second place we are to be salt and light is around the world. Um, and so this is uh, being a light on a hill. Uh, and so there infers distance. There infers drawing people to God. And so Ian Keith Falconer was a uh, Scottish missionary who died at the age of 31 he won the World Cycling Championship in 1878 at a very young age, and he was on the brink of fame. 
But at the age of 22, he would leave all of that behind to go be a missionary in um, Egypt and Yemen, where he would eventually die early of malaria. And as he was dying, people asked him, like, do you regret going to, um, to Yemen? And his response was, I have but one candle of life to burn, and I would rather burn it out in a land filled with darkness than in a land flooded with light. And this is what it means to be light of the world. And to close out this morning, I'm going to walk us briefly through what it means to be a light in the darkest places of the world, uh, where my wife and I have, have, have decided to go. We've decided to uh, leave behind the comforts of this country, um, preach the gospel in what is one of the most spiritually desolate places in the world. And uh, the first question that I think we must ask ourselves is like, well, what happens to people who don't know about Jesus? Like, what happens to people who live in darkness, they don't know about Jesus, and then they die? And we're going to close out our morning in the first few chapters of Romans, uh, because in order to understand the purpose of our identity of light, we must understand the implications of living and dying in darkness. If Jesus is calling us to be light, why is he calling us to be light? And there's, and, and there, and there, and there's a reason for it here. And so Paul wrote the uh, book of Romans. Uh, the whole book of Romans is a missionary support letter. Paul, Paul is writing to the church in Rome, saying, I am on my way to Spain. And I'm going to come, and I'm going to ask you for money, and then I'm going to go to Spain and preach the gospel where it's not been known. Um, and, and, and so Paul spends the first part of this letter essentially giving this theological discourse as to why he needs to go to Spain. And so we must keep this in the back of our minds as we read through this text, because the context of the entire book of Romans is missions. And, and then in, in these early chapters, Paul gives us four truths about darkness that I want to walk us through quickly. Uh, truth, number, truth number one that Paul shows us is that all people know God. Romans 1, 18 through 20 states, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world, in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse." So according to these verses, we, we can see that a basic knowledge of God is universal, regardless of whether that's people here in North America, whether that's a guy in a jungle in Africa, or whether that's a person in a village in Asia, or anywhere in between. All people have some knowledge of God. We know that God exists because we see his handiwork around us when we look at creation. As scripture said, his eternal power and his Godhead are clearly seen so that all men are without excuse. Truth number two, we see Paul saying all people reject true knowledge of God. Romans 1, 23-23 describes the world as intellectually darkened in reference to knowing God, the Creator. It says, For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal birds, or mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. So we are all guilty of worshiping something other than God. The person, person in Asia, us here, the person in Africa, the person in the country that we're going to, uh, whether that's our jobs, our careers, our houses, the sun, the earth, um, nature, whatever it is, whatever has taken the rightful worship of God that God is due is, is an idol. See, all people reject true knowledge of God. Truth number three, there are no innocent people in the world. Uh, in Romans 3, 10 through 12, Paul is referencing Psalm 14 and 15. He sums it up and he says, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. And, 
And so every one of us, we see, has rejected the knowledge of God so that we are not innocent. Not your neighbor, not the man in the bushes in East Asia. Uh, There are no innocent people in the world. Truth four, all are condemned for rejecting God. Romans 3, 21 through 23. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to this. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now, all of us are accountable to God for our sin and, and are deserving of separation from him. So the question about like, whether God would send someone to hell for rejecting a Jesus that they've never heard of actually misses the point. See, people are already condemned. Apart from what they've heard of Jesus, we're rejecting what they already know about God. This is why God calls us to be salt and light into the world. They are lost and they're wandering about in the darkness. And we as a church are meant to be the city on a hill to to, to, to point them to Jesus. And if we let our light shine in darkness, they can find their way to God. See, church, there is no plan B here. The church being the light in the darkest places is God's plan A. Later in Paul's missionary letter, he writes in 10, 14 through 15, how then would they call on him who they, whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? And see, this is the plan for the salvation of the nations. Those who are called are sent. Those who are sent preach the gospel. Some of those who hear the gospel believe it. And and those who believe the gospel call on God. And those who call on him are saved. See, Jesus did not declare a salt and light to make us feel good about ourselves. And I was talking to a pastor this past week, and uh, we we were just going over this this, uh, this verse, and he said, well, what struck you most about it as you were studying it? And I'm like, that God has a much higher view of myself than I do. Uh, that God can call me salt and light, even in my sin. And, and so that made me start thinking, like, he, he didn't do that to make me feel good about myself. See, God's purpose in calling us to be salt and light is not gratification, but glorification. Our shining of our light glorifies Jesus. And the concept of unreached people groups, again, that's uh, people who share ethno-linguistic similarities, who, who, have, who have little to no access to the gospel, should be unacceptable. And I want to put something forward there, there, there are 7,402 unreached people groups right now, 7,402. If we as a global church shined as bright as the sun and every person in our sphere of influence uh, who was not a Christian became a Christian, so every non-Christian I know, every non-Christian you know, every non-Christian uh, who uh, the random Chinese Christian knows, every single Christian on this earth, if everyone in their circle became a Christian, there would still be 7,402 unreached people groups. This is why we do missions, because there are people around the world who, who, who do not see the light. They cannot see the light, and God is calling us to be a light on the city on the, on a hill. Again, we aren't all called to go. Uh, I, w- I would never pretend, pretend to assert that. Uh, some of us are. Maybe it's you. Uh, Maybe it's not, but Scripture is clear that we are all called to partake in both evangelism and partake in world missions. It's not an either-or, it's a both-and. And if if you don't go, and and even if you do, you are called to give and to pray for world missions. And that brings me to my last practical application and my last ask this, this morning. So my wife and I have felt God calling us to this spiritually dark area of the world, and as we've reflected on this, we thought how incredible it is that that uh, Pastor and uh, uh, Parker would come up to us and be like, hey, can you preach this Sunday? Uh, because as we 
just sat and reflected on what it was that God was telling us to do in these passages, it, it became very clear that the missional purpose of God can be summed up in salt and light. We are to salt the earth. We, we are to make people taste for God. We, we are to make people thirsty for his salvation. And we are to be the light on the city on, on a hill. There are people walking around in darkness. There are people going to a hell that they don't even know exists. And we are, we, and we are to be that light that brings people to God. So as missionaries, my wife and I are currently raising a support team uh, for uh, our work overseas. In order to leave for the field, my wife and I have to be 100% funded uh, by people, by individuals just like you who commit to giving monthly, who, who say, I would, I would commit to, to sacrificially give every month so that you can live, you can work, and you can be a light and salt to the people in, the, in this dark place. We would, love, we would love for you to be a part of that. Uh, if we had 20 people this morning, we're, we're doing the math, if we had 20 people commit to giving $100 a month, we could be fully funded and ready to go as soon as, as we get our clearance. And I, I know what we're asking for. Maybe some of you can't give 100. Uh, what, what about 50? What about 25, 10, $5 a month to see the gospel spread among the unreached in Central Asia? Maybe for you, you, you can do more than 100, regardless of the amount. I'm not, I'm not here to tell you an amount, but I, I'm here to tell you that we cannot do this alone. My, my wife and I are being called from High Point to the ends of the earth, and we need your help. You can find giving information on the screen. Uh, you can find it on our prayer cards. You can, you can come find us at the Next Steps table. Uh, there's a website, centralasianomads.com. Uh, but maybe some of you in here heard what I said, and you said, you know, I want to be salt and light here where I am, but there's, but there's something calling me to be a salt and light in the darkest areas. I want, I want my candle to burn in a land filled with darkness. And, and whether that's where we're going, whether that's somewhere else, or may, maybe you don't even know where that is yet. Um, I, told, uh, I, told, I told Pastor the last time I preached, I'm praying for 100 people, 100 families or individuals to be called from High Point to the ends of the earth by the end of the decade. If you're interested in learning more about how to give or how to go, uh, please find my wife, uh, me, anyone on staff, any volunteer. Uh, uh, Renee and Justin are here. There's so many ways for you to get involved. Uh, highpointonline.com slash missions. There's information about local missions, including Asha's Refuge. I mean, what a great example of being salt and light uh, by providing tangible needs to this family who just immigrated here from Afghanistan. What, what an incredible example of what it means to be salt and light in the world. And there's so many more local missions that you can get involved in. Uh, the church does short-term trips to Peru with another missionary that this church supports. Uh, you can email hello at highpointonline.com. But I, I want to finish my message this morning by rereading the main passage and with the context and the multitude of verses that I read that shows from uh, from the Old Testament to the New, like why God is calling us to be salt and light. I, I want to read it again with fresh ears to hear what the Lord is saying. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Let's pray. God, we give thanks to you that you have commissioned us as your salt and your light. Let our good deeds flow out of your character and let us never lose our saltiness. Lord, let us shine our light in the darkest places. Lord, I pray that as, as, as people go forth from here, that they would begin to pray 
and that you would put it on their hearts for, for people in their circles, their, their neighbors, their friends, their family, their co-workers, whoever it is, Lord. God, you are calling and you are seeking even now, and I pray, Lord, that you would illuminate in their hearts who you have put in their circle for them to reach. I pray that you would give us boldness and wisdom. We pray all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. And so, so there's no, uh, there's, there's, there's no question up there, but we're going to go into a quick time of reflection, uh, just reflecting, ask, asking God, what steps do you want me to take from this message? Whether that's someone locally who God is placing on your heart, whether that's uh, committing to give to my wife and I monthly so that we can go overseas and share the gospel with, with people in Central Asia, or whether that's you just don't know yet, but you're just open to God and saying, like, God, whatever it is you want, you want me to do, let me do it. Ask God, listen, and then obey. Thanks so much.